0: Good morning. Welcome to Grace. It's uh, great to see all of you. If this is your first time at Grace, I want to say a special welcome to you, or maybe this is uh, your first time in a long time, and you're back, and I just want to say that um, we are in week two of a sermon series that we are doing called Lessons in Leadership, and we are looking at a highly effective leader who lived 2,500 years years ago. His name was Nehemiah and um, he actually wrote a memoir of his life and it was preserved and it is actually part of the Old Testament of the Bible. And so we're using his memoir to, uh, to look at some different leadership lessons and leadership principles. So you are joining us for a great time this morning. I want to give you guys a couple of dates Before we jump into the message, the first one is August the 11th, Sunday, August the 11th, two weeks from today, we will not be having church services on August the 11th. So uh, it's the one Sunday of the year that we cannot meet in this space. And uh, the, the, it's because the TJ, uh, I mean, not the TJ, the Arlington County Fair is going on that day. So if you, if you show up here coming for church service, I don't know if that'll be an upgrade for you if the county fair is here or a downgrade for you. But just so you know, August 11th, um, it's going to be the county fair and not Grace Community Church. So uh, just be prepared for that. Um, the second date is actually this coming Sunday, August the fourth, our regular service times, 9:30 and 11 o'clock, but we're doing something very special that you're not going to want to miss. So we're going to be continuing with our sermon series, Lessons in Leadership, and we're going to be talking about the vision that God gave to Nehemiah, and we're going to spend quite a bit of time talking about the vision of this church, which is to be a church for people who don't go to church. And what is going to be the memorable part? of the service next week, for for those of you guys who are able to make it, and I hope that you all will be able to come. The memorable part is we are going to have people from right here within our congregation who are going to be sharing stories of what God has been doing in their lives as they have been a part of this church. And I got to tell you, if you enjoy coming on Sundays and you enjoy listening to the sermons that are here week in and week out, uh, but you've never actually been a part of a service where you got to hear real life, actual stories of what God is up to in people's lives that might be sitting right next to you this week, it is so incredibly Powerful. It beats any sermon you can possibly hear any day of the week. So you will not want to miss it. And I just also want to add this: if there is someone that you work with, or live with, or are friends with, or maybe someone your enemies with, or whatever, but someone that you want to, you've been thinking, man, I would love to get them to church. And this is the kind of church that that I think that they would really enjoy. Next Sunday is going to be the perfect Sunday. To invite them to church. So maybe there's someone in your mind, and maybe uh, this might be the the week that you reach out to them and invite them, because it's going to be a really special service. Again, 9, 30, and 11, we encourage you to, to come next week for that. All right, so last week, we kicked off this series called Lessons in Leadership, and we started by looking at the very first chapter of Nehemiah, this great leader, of his memoir. And if you remember, if you were here, you caught the message online Um, The main takeaway from that message was that great leaders let problems fuel their fire. Great leaders let problems fuel their fire. Now, what was Nehemiah's problem? Nehemiah's problem was that his beloved city... Of Jerusalem, the city of his ancestors, the great city, the capital city of the Jewish people had been ransacked, had been destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire. And this has happened, this has happened like 140 years before Nehemiah. So it wasn't anything new, but the deal was Nehemiah is now, because all the Jewish people were scattered throughout the Middle East region, Nehemiah is 700 miles east In modern-day Iran, and he's actually working for the king of the the new ruling regime, which is the Persian Empire, King Artaxerxes, and he believes that now, with all this time passed, that the people have now, and with an empire empire regime change, that the Jewish people have started to kind of migrate back to, to Jerusalem and to Israel, and they're rebuilding this great city so that they can be this light and they can be God's chosen people, right? And so he's imagining all this stuff is happening. And he gets this news from his brother and some of his brother's friends who come to visit. And they're like, no, the, the, the city is still totally in shambles. The wall is like non-existent. I mean, it's, it's awful there. And so that's the huge problem. Nehemiah is wrecked over this. And he is fueled by this problem. And if you remember from last week, we talked about how, man, we all have problems. We all have things that we deal with. And allowing those things to fuel us, but not just to fuel us in any way, because there's a lot of unhealthy ways and a lot of ways that we can release and blow off energy and a lot, of, a lot of destructive things that we can do. But we talked about the importance of going right to God with our problems, going right there first. And that's what Nehemiah did. He went right to God with this massive problem, and God gave him a plan. God showed him what to do, and that's what we're going to talk about today today is how that plan all unfolded. So before we jump in to the second chapter of Nehemiah's memoir, let's, uh, let's bow our heads, if you would, and, uh, and ask for a little help. Uh, God, thank you for uh, everyone who's here today. We just ask for your help. We all want to, um, to be better leaders. We all have influence, God, in this world. We want to be a positive influence for good, and we just pray, God, that you'd give each of us something to take away this morning. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so Nehemiah writing in his second chapter says... In the month of Nisan, now this was 2,500 years ago. This is a lunar calendar system. I mean that equates to today, like March or April, okay? So kind of mid-March to mid-April is when Nisan would have been. So it's the springtime in the month of Nisan in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. Again, he is the king of the Persian Empire. The Persians are now in control of the whole region, including Israel and Jerusalem. So in the 20th year of this king, when wine was brought before him, Nehemiah says, I took the wine and I gave it to the king. If you weren't here last week, Nehemiah, he was the cupbearer to the king, which meant everything the king was going to eat and drink, Nehemiah would have to taste test to make sure it was of the utmost quality and make sure that it wasn't poisoned so the king wouldn't die because that was a lot of times how assassination attempts would happen. So he played a very important role, okay? A lot of trust had to be there. So he's taken the wine before the king, and that, that was his job to do that. So as he approaches the king, he writes this, I had not been sad in the king's presence before. So the king asks me, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This could be nothing but sadness of the heart. Nehemiah says, I was very much afraid. Now, what's Nehemiah so afraid of? Well, the thing that Nehemiah is afraid of is he knows what is about to happen next. He is getting ready to make a huge request to the king. He is getting ready to let the king know this massive problem and basically say, hey, king, will you let me go and rebuild my city? Like, I'm, I'm going to be gone. I'm vacating this position, you know, which basically you have no authority to do. And the bottom line is this. He knows he's going to make this massive request and it could cost him his job. It could even cost him his life. If the king sees this as some sort of a, a, a show that he's not being loyal, that this may be some sort of coup attempt to bring in a new cupbearer, and who knows? Kings could be very fickle back then in those days. And so the stakes are sky high, you guys. He's scared to death. So he says, I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. Now, that's just a 2,500-year-old expression that basically today would be like, King, you are awesome, you know, (laughs) um, your majesty, your highness. It was just kind of a way of buttering him up, you know, saying just the right thing there. He says, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins? He's speaking of his Jewish ancestors. He's speaking of Jerusalem. And its gates have been destroyed by fire. The king said to me, what is it you want? Nehemiah writes, then I prayed to the God of heaven. This was like one of those half-second prayers. You ever prayed one of these prayers? It's like, oh God, here we go. <gasps> okay, you know, and so just under his breath, you know, or, or to himself, he just says this prayer, and then he says, I answered the king. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, and here we go, here it comes, let him send me to the city in Judah, where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Boom. Nehemiah just lays this massive request before the king, totally puts it out there. And I just imagine him standing before the king, having just uttered those words, and he's just waiting to see how the king is going to react. He had no idea. Everything in Nehemiah's life hangs in the balance at this moment. And I just imagine his heart is like pounding out of his chest as he waits for the king to respond. It says, then the king with the queen sitting beside him asked me, so how long will your journey take? And when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me. So I set a time. Oh, wow, huge sigh of relief. He got the green light from the king to be able to go. This is a massive deal. You might think he would just be so thrilled. And before the king could change his mind or ask too many questions, like, okay, cool, I'll see you later. You know, I'm going to go ahead and get going but that's not what Nehemiah does at all. Now that he's got the green light, now that he sees that the king is on board with this, check out what he does next. This is very interesting. Great leaders do this kind of thing right here. He says, I also said to him, so if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of trans-Euphrates? That was the reason that he would have to be traveling through the 700 plus miles to get back to Jerusalem. May I have letters to them so that they may provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah? And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy? <laughs> Nehemiah doesn't just ask for permission to go, which many people would think, well, that man, just take that and just go be happy with what you got, man. Just, just do that. No, he says, okay, awesome. Now I can go. Let me ask you for a, a few more things here. I want you to expend some political capital. I want, I, I want you to ensure my safety along the way. And oh, by the way, um, you know what else would be awesome? Would you go ahead and mind funding some of this project, too? That'd be great, king. You know the most precious royal timber that you know, is strategically used for stuff that you need? Yeah, can we go ahead and have some of that, too? I mean, do you see the audacity that Nehemiah has? This, this little cupbearer, this Jewish cupbearer, and here he is making these massive requests to the king. And look at how the king responds to all that. Nehemiah writes, And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. Nehemiah is illustrating a powerful, powerful leadership tool that leaders have in their toolbox. And that tool is the personal ask. A-S-K. The personal ask. When I was in college, I went to school at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio, and um, when I was in school there, I got really involved in an organization called Habitat for Humanity. And Most of you have heard of Habitat for Humanity. They build homes for, uh, for families all over the world. Their, their mission is... Um, that they believe everyone deserves a simple, decent place to live. And so I got really into that. And in my junior year, got into the leadership uh, on our local campus of Habitat for Humanity. And there were a number of us on the leadership team. And we decided that we were going to go to a leadership conference over winter break, I think it was. And um, we went up to Canton, Ohio. We all took this road trip up there. And the reason we went is because Millard Fuller was one of the keynote speakers. Now, Millard Fuller... You probably have no idea who that guy is, but he is the founder of Habitat for Humanity. At the time, he was the the president of the organization. I think I actually have a picture um, of he and I together. I I know I look like I'm about 12, but I was actually like 20 years old in that picture. So um, anyway, so there I am. And like, he was like superstar status in my book. I mean, the vision, the model, the way that thing is set up, the way it exploded, um, Unbelievable! So I was just so geeked out to be able to be in the presence of Millard Fuller, and, um, and so he was one of the one of the speakers. I'll never forget this leadership talk that he gave. So um, we were in a room that was a little bit smaller than this, and, and he was up front. And um, as he as kind of things kicked off and it was time to get started, he he just came out to the front and um, and he went to the board. He didn't say one word. Didn't say hello. Didn't introduce his talk. Just silently went out to the board, and he wrote A S. Okay. He said, "Guys, this three-letter word is one of the most powerful tools." that you have at your disposal as a leader. But it is also one of the most underutilized tools in a leader's toolbox. Most leaders shy away from that three-letter word, ask. And the reason that most of us shy away from the ask is because we instantly think about how busy everybody is, how much time they're already giving and, and, and how little t- free time that they have, how much money that they're already investing or how expensive everything is already, or just how, how much they're in demand and, and how much, by us asking, is going to further drain them, it's going to be a burden to them, is going to be an imposition to them and it's going to be awkward and then they're going to feel bad. And so generally... Most of us, we're like, if I don't have to make the ask, I would rather not. The ask is seen as a negative thing. Well, the Lord Fuller says, look, I, I got to explain to you how important this thing is and how powerful it is. He said, listen, Jesus Christ gave us one of the most profound truths on the planet. It's found in Acts 20, 35. Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive it is more blessed to give than to receive so he said now if you think about what that means you think about the implications of jesus statement when you think about the ask so when you ask somebody to give their time their talents their money whatever it is when you ask them you actually are giving them an opportunity to give right you're giving them an opportunity to give. And according to Jesus, it is actually more blessed to give than it is to receive. So therefore, what that means is when you ask somebody to do something, you're actually giving them an opportunity to be blessed. I'm going to say that again just in case you missed that, okay? So if you're falling asleep, just, just here we go. You're, tune in back, back with me, okay? Listen, listen. When you ask somebody to do something, you're giving them an opportunity to be blessed. The worst they're going to do is say no. Totally changed the perspective of everyone in that room. Fuller went on to talk about how just unapologetically, boldly, he would go and make these asks all over the place to people he knew. He started out his career as a very prominent attorney, so he ran in some pretty nice circles of influence, and he would go to some of his uh, friends and former colleagues that he knew were working 80 to 100 hours a week, okay? If you ever try to make an ask of someone you knew was insanely busy and like totally maxed out, I mean, you've got, you've got to know it's an opportunity to be blessed. If you're doing that, and he would go to some of his friends and say, listen, I know how busy you are. I know how insane life is. I know you don't have time for this, but guess what? You don't have time not to do this. You got to come and join me on a weekend. We're building a house for a homeless family and you got to be a part of it. And he would just boldly, unapologetically make these asks and he'd get, he'd get people to come with him and, and work side by side on these houses. And you know what friend after friend after friend would say, like, thank you so much, for asking me you know I haven't had that much fun in years he had all these people in his life that were largely unfulfilled and for the first time they, they were doing something just so incredibly gratifying he said you gotta ask and Millard Fuller was the king of the ask and let me tell you I mean, this guy, there was no one he wouldn't ask, and this, this will illustrate my point. So in 1976, he, he founded Habitat, and nobody knew who he was, and he was like, you know, I'm not going to put this organization on the map. I need someone who is going to make this thing take off and, um, and, you know, give it credibility and help it to spread. And so he thought, well, who could I ask? I said, I know who I'll ask. I'm going to ask the President of the United States. That's who I'm going to ask. And He did we got a picture, I think. Now, the sad thing is that there's probably many of you in this room who don't even know who that is. (laughs) That, thank you, that is President Jimmy Carter, and we're not going to critique his presidency, okay? We're not going to do that, but he responded to this request, and he said, you know what? Sure, I'll put my name on that. Sure, I'll show up to a couple of of events with that. That sounds like a, a... a totally worthwhile thing to do. I don't know if it's the same case today, but I can tell you that 20 years ago when I was just getting involved with Habitat for Humanity, you know who most people thought the founder of Habitat was? Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter. Well, isn't that Jimmy Carter's organization? Isn't that Jimmy Carter's thing? And that was brilliant for Millard Fuller. He's like, great. <laughs> they don't know who Millard Fuller is, but if they think Jimmy Carter started it, that's pretty cool, right? Look at, check out what Carter says about his involvement with Habitat for Humanity. Carter said, Habitat gives us an opportunity. Notice that word. There it is again. Habitat gives us an opportunity, which is very difficult to find, to reach out and work side by side with those who have never had a decent home, but work with them on a completely equal basis. The ask is one of the most powerful tools in our toolbox don't ever forget that when you make the ask you're giving someone an opportunity to be blessed now if you're like oh this sounds cool and you're starting to get a little bit fired up about it and you're already thinking about some things you need and how you want to ask let me let me just give you a couple of practical tactical little things about the ask cuz there's a right way and a wrong way to make an ask okay And um, so basically, here's, here's the main thing to remember. Don't ever ask someone to meet a need. Ask them to be part of something great. Okay? People will respond to need here and there, but it's not a sustainable way to make an ask. It's just not because think about it. People don't want to hear that the ship is sinking. Please come join me and jump on the ship. Okay? They just don't want to hear that. Guys, there's tons of holes and we got buckets. And we, like three guys just jumped onto the lifeboat. Like, can you please come here? Can you will you come on the boat? Okay, people don't want to do that. I mean, there's a few people who will, but it's not sustainable. People don't want to get on a sinking ship. They want to get on a cruise liner bound for somewhere awesome, right? That's the kind of ship you want to get on. So don't ask someone to meet a need. Ask them to be part of something great. So Millard Fuller, the way that he would make it ask is he would never say, hey, guys, you know, this Saturday um, we're doing this build, and we're like, you, we've, we've had a bunch of people drop out, and we're really short, and it's going to be a long day, and we just desperately need your help. Would you please, please come to the work site? No, that's not getting it done. You might get a, a couple people that way, but that's not, that's not the winning way to do it. Instead, he would say, listen, I don't know if you're busy this weekend, but you better change your plans if you are. Because this will blow whatever you're doing in the, uh, this weekend, it'll, this will blow it out of the water. We are actually working side by side with a family that's been living out of their car and we're working with them to build them a house. How awesome do you think that would be? What a cool thing to spend your Saturday doing. And that is the way that you make an ask. Nehemiah did this in a text that we just looked at. When he said to the king, he said, King, you know why I'm so bummed out is because the city of my ancestors is in ruins. When he said that, this this absolutely resonated with the king, because back then, 2500 years ago, in that Near East region, I mean, this was a huge deal, respect for ancestors, respect for the dead, I mean, that transcended religious belief and everything else, this is a, a massive deal, and so you know what the king said, it's like, oh man, yeah, that, that, that is, that's important, that's something worthwhile, yeah, that's a big deal, I want to be part of that, I'll help with that, Nehemiah, Nehemiah made the ask, in the right way. So when we ask, we have to recruit to vision. And that's so much of what we're going to unpack next week is how to how to cast that vision and what that looks like. And as I said at the beginning of this message, we're going to talk about grace's vision and where we're headed as a church, what it means to be a church for people who don't go to church and, and how you all fit in to that. And so make sure you come back next week for that one. So That ask is such an important tool in a leader's toolbox. But the question that I'm left with is, well, what enabled Nehemiah to make such a bold ask? I mean, he was scared to death in front of the king. This thing could cost him his life. What was it that enabled him? Well, there were two things. The first one we talked about last week, he was just plain fired up. He was fueled by a problem. Great leaders are fueled by a problem, and he just couldn't take it. He was wrecked over the news that Jerusalem was in shambles, and it was a disgrace. So he was fired up, but don't miss this, because it, this, this fired up thing was combined with something else that was equally or more than, more important even, and that was that Nehemiah believed to the marrow of his bones that God was directing him to go and rebuild this wall. I mentioned to you in, in verse one, it was the month of Nisan, which was uh, March or April, um, when when Nehemiah found out this awful news and when he initially started crying out to God, that was four months ago. So it's been four months of Nehemiah face down on the floor, wrestling with God, pleading with God, crying out to God, and getting clarity on exactly what God wanted him to do. Look at what Nehemiah writes in verse 12 of this second chapter. He says, I had not told anyone what God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. So Nehemiah believed with everything that he had, that God was sending him out. And This enabled him to make this ask. It created this fierce resolve in Nehemiah, this unwavering commitment to this cause to go and to rebuild the wall of this great city. And here's the thing, guys. It didn't matter who he was standing in front of. The king of the whole empire didn't care. It didn't matter who he had to recruit to ask. And we're going to look at that in the weeks to come. It didn't matter what kind of opposition or conflict or adversity that he faced. He had such fierce resolve to finish this thing. And I'll give you a little teaser to the end. 52 days was all it took Nehemiah and this team to build this wall because he had such fierce resolve, such unwavering commitment to what God had put on his heart to do. So that's what made it, even though he was scared to death, that's what helped him to make this ask, was fierce resolve. Great leaders have that. But what was it that gave Nehemiah success with the king? What made his ask successful? Well, Nehemiah tells us in verse 8 of chapter 2, he says, because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my request. is like, look, it had nothing to do with me at all. It was all God. God was responsible for my success. God was responsible for my favor. I had prayed and asked God for favor. God gave me favor. It had nothing to do with me. It was all God. Nehemiah was an unbelievably humble person. In fact, when he was wrestling with God in the first chapter, which we looked at last week, when he was sitting there just wrestling with God, how could this happen? And how could this great city be destroyed? Aren't we your people? And, and how's this all work? And what's the plan? And all this and just for months and months and months. You know, he comes to this striking realization as he's praying to God. And it's in verse 6. He realizes, this is in the middle of his prayer to God, that the, he, he and his people need to take ownership. And so he says, praying to God, he says, I confess The sins that we Israelites, the Jewish people, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. He's saying, look, I'm part of the problem right here. Do you see the humility in this man? He was genuinely humble, and this was a mark of his leadership. See, and and if you want to write this in, here's here's the principle today. Great leaders have this paradoxical blend of fierce resolve and genuine humility. Fierce resolve and genuine humility. Nehemiah embodied these two qualities. And that was 2,500 years ago. Let's bring it to present day. There are some of you in this room who have heard of an author and a speaker Called Jim Collins. He's written several New York Times bestsellers. One's called Built to Last. This particular book is called Good to Great. And um, basically, what Collins set out to do was to try and figure out what was it about certain companies that were just good—you know, middle of the pack in their industry. They were just tracking along for long periods of time, like 15 plus years, and then all of a sudden, something happened, and then they started outperforming their industry by at least, at least three, to, three times to one in terms of earnings and, and things like that, for at least a 15-year period. And so he set out to figure out what, what is it about those companies that takes them from good to great, thus the title of the book. And what's fascinating about Colin's study is that one of his biases coming in was he's, he, this was one of his assumptions. He said, "Okay, now we know that all these big, big name companies, okay, huge companies that trade on the New York Stock Exchange and stuff, they've all got great leaders. They're all you know charismatic. They're all you know, fired up. They're all um, brilliant and have vision, and you know they do all those things. Okay, so so let's just let's just not even really look at the executives." And let's try and figure out but what is it about the systems, the processes, you know, what is it that helped those companies go from just good company to greatness? And all the research, all the data, there's a research team of over twenty people working for five years on this stuff, kept coming back over and over and over again. And you know what they said? It's the leader. It's the leader. It's the leader. It's the leader. That's what makes the difference. And Collins hated it that was not what he wanted to hear. But the the evident, the data couldn't didn't lie. And what was fascinating was they eventually they had this strict criteria and they threw out tons of companies that could just it was like external success, or you know, they got lucky on something and it didn't really have much to do with the leader. And they I think they came down to thirteen different companies that made this leap. And in every single one, the catalyst was what they called a level five leader. Every single one. These were the most unlikely leaders you would ever think of. They weren't these highly charismatic celebrity-like CEOs at all. In fact, they were leaders that no one would really recognize their names at all because they were so humble. In fact, many of them didn't even feel like they really should have the job or were fully worthy of doing the job or were doing the best job That they could. But you know what makes a level five leader, Collins found out? Five years worth of research on this stuff. Two qualities. Fierce resolve, an unwavering commitment to the cause, and genuine humility. Those are the two things in every single one of these good to great companies. If you haven't read this book, it's it's absolutely phenomenal leadership book. I want to read to you a quote because it just brings Nehemiah 2,500 years ago in his memoir right to today. Collins writes, Level 5 leaders channel their ego needs away from themselves and into the larger goal of building a great company. It's not that level 5 leaders have no ego or self-interest. Indeed, they are incredibly ambitious, but their ambition is first and foremost for the institution, not themselves. So these leaders, they basically, whatever it takes to get there, whatever the cause, whatever the greater good, and they don't care who gets the credit as long as we get there. Ten and a half years ago, my wife and I, um, we'd been trying to find a church for quite a while, and we just hadn't found that church that we felt a connection with. And it was a very frustrating process. And we, uh, we wandered into um, Key Elementary School, which was the home of Grace Community Church at that time, into this little multi-purpose room. And um, I remember at the time there were maybe, I don't know, 75 people there or whatever. I think that it was about year three of, of uh, Grace's existence. And um, I remember you know, coming in, and, and people were, were nice, and, uh, and we sat down, Becky and I sat down all the way in the back row. I just want to give a shout out to all you guys, like all the way in the back row. That's right, because it was like, I can get the heck out of here if it gets weird. You know, it's a very, I'm just kind of like, okay, I can keep my eyes on everybody, so nobody's sneaking up on me and putting anything on me. You know, it was just, it was just a safe Nice, safe place for me to be. So we were sitting there, and, um, and I remember hearing the music, and, and you know, it was, it was okay. I don't want to offend anybody who was playing that day who's still here. Um, it, was, it was okay. I remember like, okay, that's, that's, that's not bad. I could improve a few things, but um, okay, that wasn't bad. And then I remember we, we got to the sermon, and, uh, and our very own pastor, John Sly, stood up and uh, started speaking. And I have no idea what the message was about that day whatsoever. Um, but what I do remember was about five minutes in, in my mind, without saying anything to my wife who was standing, sitting right next to me, I just said, you know what? We found our church. Because I was like, that's a leader that I want to follow. Um, and he is absolutely going to kill me for this. He's absolutely going to kill me, sitting right over there. And um, this might be the last sermon I preach, actually, because <laughs> he might kill me or fire me. But um, the thing that struck me so much about that sermon, and it's just the way that he speaks every week, week in and week out, and you know this about him, um, he's so genuinely humble. Just, hey, you know, this is a struggle that we all have. You know, this is something that's difficult even For me, and be the first one to raise his hand and um, be able to inspire, but also just with total humility to be able to convey these powerful truths about who God is. And um, just the fact that literally, like, his skin is crawling right now. and he just is like, wants to kill me right now, It is just even further evidence of how genuinely humble he is. Because the times we have tried to like make a big deal, we'll work with Krista, his wife, to like come up with some sort of surprise thing or whatever, like he just freaks him out. He just does not ever want it to be about him. Doesn't ever want the credit. Just a genuinely, genuinely humble person. But combined with that, combined with that, It's this fierce resolve, you guys. It's this unwavering, relentless pursuit of this vision that God has given this church to be a church for people who don't go to church. It's this extraordinary blend of these two qualities that we have in our very own pastor who, like I said, might kill me or tackle me right off the stage. But anyway, go ahead and let me finish if you could. Um, So let me just just close with this. Um, The good news about these great leaders and this principle that we've just looked at is that according to Collins, he says every single one of us has the potential to be a level five leader. Every single one of us has that potential. But the difficult thing is that it's a paradox. These two things are rarely found together, and if you think about it, it makes sense, because those who have fierce resolve, like those who are just driven, oftentimes the reason that we're so driven is because we love how it makes us feel when we accomplish, we, we're overcompensating for um, weaknesses or insecurities, um, and, and so we're driven because it, it feeds our ego, it's just, it's just a reality of the human condition in, in many ways. So it's hard to find the fierce resolve and the genuine humility. But at the same time, it's fairly easy to find people who are genuinely humble, but it's hard to find genuinely humble people that also have that fierce resolve and who are so fired up. Collins says, we can get both. Every single one of us in this room is capable of being an extraordinary leader. But according to Collins, this is what he says. He says, you're gonna to have to work at it. It's a huge, long process. It involves changing the way you think about some of these things. I mean, how do you go from, you know, how do you just get humble? That doesn't just happen, okay? And it, it involves coaching and attitude adjustments and discipline and training and behavior modeling and all this stuff. And he said, but he says, we can all do it. It's just gonna be difficult. Well, that's where we would end today if this was a leadership seminar, but it's not. This is a church service. And so we have a totally different context that we look at these things through, a different lens. And so I just want to let you know that as a man of faith in Jesus Christ, I believe that it's actually our Christian faith that can make us a level five leader, that can have Both of these qualities, this fierce resolve and this genuine humility. Let me try and explain. And you may, this this may be your first time ever hearing really what Christianity boils down to. Or you might have heard it your whole life, but maybe something will just connect differently for you this morning. But let me try and roll it down because I believe that if we truly grasp what it means to be a Christian, it brings us both of these qualities right into our lap. Okay? So let's look at humility first. What Christianity all boils down to is this, you guys. Okay, forget everything you know about Christianity. This is what it boils down to. There's not one of us in this room, and I will be the first one to raise my hand, that can say we've lived a perfect life. We've all messed up. We've, we all fall short of perfection. No, not one of us is a perfect person. And so... None of us, according to what Christianity is really all about, none of us deserves to spend eternity with a perfect, holy being. Because we're just not in that same realm. We're not in that same category. It doesn't matter how much good stuff we do, we'll never get there. We're not worthy. And so God looked down at our condition and said, okay, so I'm going to make a way for this to happen. I'm going to make a way for you to be made perfect and righteous and holy. And God said, I am going to come down to this earth, take on human flesh and be fully God and fully human at the exact same time. And I am going to live a life, this is through the person of Jesus Christ, that none of you can live the perfect life and then die on a cross as a sacrificial payment for all the sin, all the wrongdoing, all the mistakes, everything that's gone wrong in this world, And basically take them on myself. And anyone who just would say, Awesome, I I just I I will take that. I'll have faith in you. I'll give I'll give them forgiveness, and they'll be made perfect in the eyes of God. Now, if you fully grasp that concept, basically what that means is this: you're completely humbled. Because there's, then there's not one of us in this room that says, okay, man, like we're good in the eyes of God because of all the great things we did." I just made church eight Sundays in a row. Man, that's my new record. You know, I, boy, I just read through the entire Bible. How much does God love me? I work in Graceland. No, it doesn't, none of that counts. None of it counts. Sorry, guys. I see a lot of blue T-shirts, but it doesn't, doesn't count. It just doesn't, it's not going to get you there. All right? The only thing that does is accepting Jesus' loving sacrifice on the cross for our sins. And the beautiful thing about that is that it's so deeply humbling. It doesn't make us better than anyone else. None of us is worthy. None of us. But we're all loved by this God who is willing to make this sacrifice for us. So if we grasp, really grasp the Christian faith, it brings us to a place of deep, deep humility. One of those qualities that we need as level five leaders Now, let's look at the fierce resolve piece because Jesus didn't just come to die for our sins and then, woo, we're good. You know, I got my free ticket to heaven. Like just, you know, set me on a recliner and I'm good until I die. Okay, that's not the deal. Jesus also calls us to follow after him, to begin a relationship with him and to start being about the things that he was about. Not because somehow that earns your way into God's favor because it doesn't but because that's what you should want to do after what God has done for you. And so Jesus says, come on and partner with me. All the things that that freak Jesus out in this world, all the things that Jesus was about trying to make this world a better place and love this world, he invites us to partner in that with him. To not be about ourselves, but to look at the greater good, the the bigger cause, the bigger picture. And when when we get that, that creates this fierce resolve in us. We're not doing it for ourselves. We're doing it for God, for God's purposes. And so it's actually when we grasp what Christianity is really all about that it brings us to a place where of genuine humility and at the same time, fierce resolve. So we're going to close in prayer this morning and we're not going to do a last song. So I'm just going to kind of leave you to 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 think about this thing, every single one of us in this room, whether we choose to recognize it or not, is a leader. I don't care how old you are in this room, you are a leader. I don't care if you're in school, if if you've never held a leadership position, a formal position in your whole life, if you don't have a title, whatever. We all lead people by our influence. And so I want to challenge you to think about your leadership. And how you can leverage your influence in this world for good. Let's pray. God, um, we just want to say thank you for um, the lessons that we're learning through um, this great leader named Nehemiah. And we thank you that this 2,500-year-old memoir was preserved for us in the Bible and for what it teaches us. God, help all of us in this room in our circles of influence, in the places where we have leadership influence, help us to lead well. For those who just, we realize we we have an ego problem, we need to be more humble, God, humble us. For those of us who, we feel like we just, we need something that we're more fired up about, we need a greater commitment to something beyond ourselves, God, give us a vision for what that looks like. And help us, God, to lead to the very best of our abilities. Not for us, but ultimately for you. In Christ's name, amen. All right, guys, have a great week. We'll see you next week. Take care.